So, today is Father's Day. I'm going to invite someone forward who is inspirational, allows us to grow and be who we are, inspires us with his words, and is a dad. And here he comes up the center aisle, Reverend Patrick Cameron. Good morning and welcome. Happy Father's Day. I'm going to invite you to sing a song with me. Thank you, Jenny. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. And if you'd like to stand and sing and say a prayer with me, that's great. If not, stay seated. Whatever serves your highest and best. In this very room, there's quite enough love. For all the world And in this very room There's quite enough joy For all the world And there's quite enough love And quite enough power To walk through our every fear For spirit One spirit is in this very room, in this very room, in this very room. Know with me, in recognition of the one life. That life is God's life. That life is perfect. That life is my life now. And speaking in the I am for each person here, I claim that in this moment. And in claiming that, in choosing that, it chooses me. And so I know for each one of us, as we open ourselves up to the mystery and the joy and the celebration of life, to be delighted, to move forward in this life in a new and powerful and wonderful way, I give thanks. For this is my knowing, this is my declaration. And as we know, that which we dwell upon, we become. So let us dwell upon the highest and best of our nature. Let us speak to our higher nature. Let us keep our conversation in heaven. In that language of being that allows us to participate in life in love and abundance and joy and health and prosperity. And to meet the challenges of our everyday work with the mindfulness and the grace and the kindness that allow us to be a blessing and a, a, a pathway of grace upon this planet. And so I give thanks knowing that in my union with this one idea, with this presence and power, that I am empowered. I stand in the humility and the willingness to be guided and nurtured and supported not only from that spiritual place, but by all the people that I draw into my life. Everyone, everyone here for the greatest good. For this I give thanks. Releasing these words, I invite you to say with me, And so it is. Please be seated. Thank you. So, just want to let you know that Jenny has CDs back there as well. It says Jenny Ty on them. There's five songs on there. She's charging $5. I think that that's way too low. So I encourage you to be generous. And thank you for sharing your music with us. So it's Father's Day. And I was thinking back to when I was a young man. There were, there were 11 children in our family, so we were just swarmed with great stuff. We had more than enough. 
And I remember when I got to be 16 years old, my dad gave me the keys to his car and his credit card and said, go charge up, go have fun. Remember that when your dad did that for you? <laughs> no, my dad didn't do that either. In fact, my dad didn't even have a credit card. I remember the first time he went on a trip and he tried to rent a car and he didn't have a credit card. So he didn't believe in him. But part of it, you know, we're here, we're here as a, a legacy to those that have gone before us, the generations. Just think of all the generations that have gone before us to allow us to be here. It's amazing. It's amazing. And so our opportunity is to be mindful of that and to live our best, our best life, our highest potential. I was standing in the back and I was listening to Jenny sing and I thought, isn't it wonderful to be a launching pad for, for, for brilliance? And I think that's what we stand for organically is people have gifts and talents to share and if we can create an environment where they can do that most effectively... I think at the end of the day, then we've, we've, we've done what we should be doing. So I had some, oh, here they are, my notes. I wanted to uh, share with you a quote from a, one of my favorite authors. His name is A.H. Almas, and he's a scholar. He's, uh, I believe he was trained in, at Berkeley or Stanford. I can't remember. I, go, I googled him this morning. But he wrote one of my favorite books called The Facets of Unity, which is about the Sufi tradition of the Enneagram. And it talks about, he, he articulates at a very high level what the Enneagram will allow us to do. And the Enneagram is an, is an ancient wisdom that was brought forth by the Sufis. But he had this to say in one of his writings, A.H. Almas. And what he does is he marries, modern, marries mod, modern psychology with the spiritual practice. The perennial truth with spiritual practice. And that's what Dr. Holmes did, our founder. But he said, when the soul is caught up in rigid identification with others in the world, it is not satisfied. In every soul, there is an inherent drive towards truth, an inherent desire to feel fulfilled, real, and free. We all come tripwired for a, a longing to feel fulfilled, real, and free. Dr. Ernest Holmes called it divine discontent. And although many people are not able to pursue this desire effectively because they don't have the spiritual practice or they're not in an environment that allows them to or for whatever reason, or maybe they're in an environment that's conducive to that but are unable to pursue it effectively, the impetus towards the realization of the self is in all of us. The impetus towards the realization of the self is in all of us. It begins with the first stirrings of consciousness and continues throughout life whether or not we are directly aware of it. So it's always active in us. It's always alive. And when we start to enter into that conversation, things start to shift and change. This impetus spontaneously emerges in consciousness as an important task for the psychologically and spiritually maturing human beings. And I think when I read that, I think that that is what we are. We're, we're, we are progressively maturing spiritually and emotionally and psychologically. As maturity grows into wisdom in an optimally developing person, this task gains precedence over other tasks in life, progressively becoming the center that orients, supports, and gives meaning to one's life, and ultimately encompassing all of one's experience. So in other words, our journey here is an opportunity to progressively move into that in a, in a more apparent way until ultimately, and I think this has been my experience, it becomes the centerpiece of our lives. It doesn't mean we withdraw from the world. That was three, four hundred years ago. We don't become renunciants, but we take our spirituality and our, our knowing and our wisdom to the world wherever we are. And I think that's what we're called to do. I think at this point in our development on this planet, collectively and individually, we're called to do that. So we've been working with this, this wonderful book by Janine Roth called Women, titled Women, Food, and God, and we're starting study groups with it. 
It's a wonderful book, and as I've done the last few weeks, you put your finger over the W-O, the men are in there too. It's men, food, and God as well. But it's really about a practice of how we, how we leave the present moment and how we can fall asleep to the divinity and the, and the essence and truth of who and what we are. I was thinking back um, to my dad of the last week and, and a lot of reflection on, on his participation in my life. And, you know, his, his journey was a, an interesting one. He didn't have the opportunities. The consciousness wasn't there for him to do a lot of the, the, the gifts and opportunities that I have in my life and to, to ask some of the, the questions that I think are, we're called to ask right now. But it was a different time and a different consciousness. This stirring that we have that, that compels all of us, I've, I've just finished reading the, first, the introduction to Greg Mortensen's Stones, Schools from Stones. And it's a wonderful book. He's the author of Three Cups of Tea. He's built over 138 schools in Afghanistan, helping educate um, primarily girls. Because as he knows, when you educate women, you change a whole culture. They typically stay in the village, and they, they typically pass that information on to their children. And he said the day after um, Bernanke, the, the head of the federal uh, financial system in the United States announced the, the crash of the markets when the banks all, all were out of money and they had to be bailed out. The day after, Greg now Greg travels and he gives speeches after speeches after speeches. We sent him a part of our tithe in, in February uh, in appreciation for what he's done because he's changing the world. And we sent a portion of our tithe that month to him. <clears throat> and he, he travels extensively and he speaks and, and, and uh, gathers money. But he said he was in Durango, Colorado, and he was giving a talk. And he said it was the day after this financial crisis hit. And everyone, you know, for a lot of people, the world was, the, the sky was falling. And he said in a population of, uh, of 16,000 people, the contributions that day were, I believe, $125,000. $125,000 from a group of people. So one of the gifts, and it may have been 150, but I think it was 125,000. He said the gifts that day came from mostly individuals. One individual, the man who developed Crocs, somebody was wearing Crocs this morning, gave 50,000 that day. He lives in Durango. But the rest of the money came from just normal citizens giving money. And I thought, isn't it interesting that here in the face of this tremendous crisis, or what looks like a crisis, people opened their hearts and, and would give what they could give. And it just speaks volumes to that longing for us to express and share our good, to live from our good. Our inherent nature is goodness. And that's one of the reasons I love this book by Janine Roth is because she talks about it in such a beautiful way and she deals with this issue around compulsive behavior, in this particular case, uh, compulsive eating. But it applies in any area of our lives Dr. Holmes, Dr. Ernest Holmes said this about, about healing, about shifting consciousness. He said, anyone can heal who believes that he can and who will take the time to set the belief in motion through the law, to daily see the perfect man and to daily declare for his objective appearance is correct mental practice and will heal. So what we know is that which we dwell upon, we become. It's the nature of life. It's the nature of how we interact with this divine presence. So God, in other words, is not anthropomorphic. God is a principle that we're immersed in. It's an energetic, it's a vibration. 
And so on Father's Day, I thought a wonderful story to help illustrate that. If, if um, you've ever heard the story of the prodigal son, anybody ever heard that story before? Yeah, a few of us have. So the, the prodigal son is a is story told by the teacher Jesus of Nazareth. And we, of course, are, we are a Christian tradition. The Christians probably wouldn't want to own us, but we really are motivated by <laughs> We are really motivated by the, the, the story and the, and the healing and the process of, of the Jesus of Nazareth. And, and what we do is we celebrate that. We celebrate all the essence, all the good that he had to share. And the, the challenge we have is that we're, we're asked to, to be Christians that we would say that he is the only pathway to God. And that is, for us, I think we've been, an idea that we've been able to celebrate but also to, to tithe back to the universe because it doesn't serve, I don't think it serves us or the planet at this point in time, but to celebrate all that he did, the healing and what he demonstrated. And so he spoke in parables. One of the parables he told was the prodigal son. And on Father's Day, I thought, what an appropriate story. And if you know the story, there are two brothers. And one brother goes out. <clears throat> one brother decides, you know what, I want to go have some fun. This isn't any fun anymore. So he goes to his father and says, Dad, I'd like my inheritance. And his dad says, here you go. Here's all that's yours. And he takes it and he goes off and he has a great time. He's having a wonderful time. He's doing all the things he'd ever wanted to do and more. And the other brother stays home. And he's not happy because he's not behaving. His brother's not behaving the way he should behave. This is unacceptable. And he's having all the fun. And so finally, the, the first brother, if you saw the movie uh, uh, Legends of the Fall with Brad Pitt, I don't know if you've seen it, but it's a wonderful example. It is the story of the prodigal son. Brad Pitt plays Tristan. And uh, Tristan is the adventurer, and he's the wild man. He's just this force of nature. And uh, his brother, Albert, who's played by Aideen Quinn, is, of course, the one that does everything right. Decide, gets into politics, stays home to help the family, nurtures all of the traditions, keeps everything going. And so Tristan goes off into the world, and he's having, he actually takes off because he's motivated by grief, and he leaves for a few years. But it's the same essence of the same story. And so the, the Tristan character comes back uh, after a number of years or a period of time, and he goes through all of his money, and he's, when he's out there, he runs out of money, has nothing left, and he has to go to work with the swine. He works with the pigs. And of course, in the Jewish tradition, that's the, the lowliest of the low jobs, working with the pigs. So after a while working with the pigs, he decides, you know what, I'm going back home. I'd rather be a servant to my father than have to work with the pigs. So he goes back home, and his dad's there, and as soon as he shows up, the dad just embraces himself. Welcome back. We've missed you. Welcome back. And, and of course, the, the Tristan character wants to apologize and tell his dad what he's done, and he doesn't even want to hear it. He just says, welcome back unconditionally, and just embraces him and loves him up. Says, Let's slaughter the fatted calf, which is the prized possession. And the other brother's like, what is up with this? I did everything right. And here's my brother who was just out there goofing off and throwing his money away, being irresponsible and careless and doing whatever he wanted to do, running with whatever thought, whatever impulse came along, he ran with it. And I'm here. I'm the good steward doing the right things. And and now he comes home my dad just slaughters the fatted calf. And the the beauty of that story is if we read sacred scripture, we're all the characters. We're all the characters. And so what Jesus was trying to impart is that when we come home to the the true self, when we come home to this divine nature which lives in all of us, it's not something we acquire, we showed up equipped with it. Whatever we've done doesn't matter because we have come back home. Now it doesn't give us an excuse to say, you know what, I'm going to go out and do it again because I, I can always come home and be forgiven, which you can. 
But that becomes a bit pathological. And so there's, there's with wisdom is responsibility. And so with the, with the prodigal son, it is our story. It's all of our stories. But how can we come back? How do we come home to this divine essence? How can we live, as, as Dr. Holmes said, when we impress upon an idea upon this infinite law, this infinite intelligence that always responds to our every thought and to every prayer, how then can we use that the most effectively in our lives? So dropping back to this women, food, and God with Jeannie and Roth, she talks about this in this chapter. It's a beautiful tie-in for this week's discussion. It's Father's Day. We are all the father. We are all the sons. When we forget in our spiritual practice and we go off on a holiday, spiritual practice allows us to come back home. We all forget. We all forget. If you think you're not going to forget, forget it. (laughs) She talks about the test in this book. She said the test when, it, when compulsive eating is our challenge, or maybe it's gambling, or maybe it's just thinking, or maybe it's, you're a rageaholic, or whatever, whatever practice you're using, just apply it to this. But she said the test, losing weight or, or not being whatever it may be, becomes their religion, and they must suffer humiliation and torment. They must enroll in an endless succession of diet, dietary privations, and then and only then will they be pure, be holy, and be saved. So right away it becomes something to achieve, to be pure, to be holy, to be saved. And we create the story. So here's the prodigal son and here's his brother. Here's Albert looking at his brother and realizing, you know what, I did all the right things and I deserve. We've done all the right things I deserve. Here it's being played out in that story. The most difficult part of teaching people to respect and listen to their bodies is overcoming their conviction that there's nothing to respect. How many of us don't respect this physical form? I don't care what it looks like. I'm not talking about what the physical form looks like, but yet we have this vehicle to move in. But how many of us have got up this morning? How many of us have thanked our our physical being for bringing us together today? To be able to have ears to hear the beautiful music, to to have hands to shake hands and to hug. We're so so in it, we forget the the joy and the possibility of this. And they can't find, she, she continues, they can't find any place in them that is whole or intact. But in essence, we're all whole, we're all intact. We always have been. We just make up a story that moves us out of it, and then we live in separation. When we do affirmative prayer here, what we do is, the first thing we do is we recognize there's one life. That life is God's life, and that life is perfect. And I claim that life as my own right now. Not that we are the totality of God. What it does is it shifts, it shifts our beingness on the planet. It's ancient wisdom. But it also needs to be honored. We have to approach it, I think, with a, a sense of grace and a, a sense of humility and dignity. Otherwise, we can confuse that with our egoic selves. And all of a sudden, as some people have said to me, and I've tried to share this teaching with, well, you guys think you're God. God lives in all of us. It's not exclusive to me or you. It's all of us. She said that when she tells people to relax, or she says to people, trust yourself, they feel as if I'm asking them to throw themselves to the wolves. That if I, I trust, we'll, we'll lower that defense mechanism, that anxiety, that free-floating anxiety that says we always have to be on guard, that we always have to protect ourselves, that the world is a threatening place, or to trust ourselves. And yet that's a doorway. Banishing them to wild and ferocious brokenness. To trust ourselves is not that. The possibility that there's a place in us in everyone that is unbroken, that has never gained a pound, never been hungry, never been wounded, it seems like a myth. It seems far-fetched. And she asked them to think about babies when they're born. 
the beauty and the innocence of babies, how they just show up fully orbed, beautiful and wonderful. She said what, that she's at this retreat. She uses the example of herself, and she said one day, and she, they're in an isolated place, and there's not a whole lot of, of, of uh, medical support around her. She had an allergic reaction, and her face just blew up. She said she couldn't even open her eyes at one point. She had one eye she could sort of look at. And she decided to use it as a, as a teaching at the retreat. And she asked people to look at her and tell her what they, they saw. And she said, ah, we don't even, we don't even, you know, we're not even looking at that anymore. We thought she just looked old and haggard for some reason. You know, which points out that, you know, if we knew how little people thought of us or paid attention to us, you know, our imperfection. Remember when you were a teenager and you might have an imperfection and you'd have to go to school and look for the little, I used to grab my sister's uh, makeup and try and cover it over and, all that, because you don't want anybody to see your imperfection. She says, mostly I wanted them to use, so this idea of her face blowing. She wanted to use their reactions to my face as a way to explore what they believed about their bodies. If they gained 10 pounds, if their arms didn't look the way they wanted them to look, were they still themselves? If we don't look the way we ideally picture ourselves, are we still ourselves? Are we still that divine essence? And besides the ongoing story in their minds about the way it should be, the way they wanted it to be, and the way it needed to be for them to be happy, was anything actually wrong? So what do I need or you need to actually be happy? What does it have to be? And what are the ideas, as she said, that, that we believe we can't live without? Could you live without the idea that you're not good enough? That because you are a certain way physically that, there's some, that that's enough reason for you not to be good enough? Because it's a very popular idea. And beating ourselves up more and more is not spiritual practice. Nowhere in any of the parables that I have ever read that Jesus of Nazareth has shared does he say, go, beat, go and beat thyself up more. It's not there. She says, the most difficult part of teaching people to respect and listen to their bodies is overcoming the conviction that there's nothing to respect. Nothing to respect. She said, I asked them to look beyond the color and shape of their eyes, the color and shape of their bodies, and to, see what they're, and to see what is seeing. For people who didn't quite understand the seeing, what was seeing part, I asked them to remember, if only for a moment, what it was like to be a child before they began to label and name the objects in their world. What was it like to see an extravaganza of form and color before they knew it was a rose or could comp- compare it to another rose? And so she asked them to look deeply. She asked them to go to the mirror and look deeply seeing what is seeing. And they came back. When we take time to really look at the depths of our being and see what we're seeing, to look into our souls, it's there. And we've seen that in the romantic poetry, to look deeply into the eyes to see the soul. They come back and use, use words like brilliant, precious, completely open. I see wonder. I see innocence. See beauty and loveliness, a feast of color. It's all there. It's there if we look deeply. But so many of us, myself included, the tradition I was brought up in, we didn't do those things. Not be, because the consciousness wasn't there. Consciousness wasn't there. And that's what we're giving birth to, is a, be, a way for us to be in the world, to rebirth. Next week, we're going to talk about discovering and, and teaching and imparting loveliness. Loveliness. It's our divine essence. 
But when we use those words, sometimes we squirm because we think, well, if I live from loveliness, I'll just lose all my motivation because all of this anxiety and beating myself up has kept me going all these years. My sister told me that when I started to meditate. She said, if you don't have stress in your life, what good are you going to be? I was, I was starting to meditate, and the family was worried that I was losing my mind, and I was, and, and, you know, I was going to be off in an ashram somewhere. I just wanted a little peace of mind. And I had to do it. I had to disappoint them to take care of myself. If you have anybody in your life you're worried about their approval so you, you restrict your good so that you can have their approval, it's not a very big idea of relationship. If people love us, they want the best for us. If you love yourself, you want the best for yourself. And I'm not talking the egoic, surface kind of love. I'm talking about the depth of being. I'm talking about that conversation. I'm talking about the loveliness, the power, the beauty. But someone said to her at the retreat, while they're doing this mirror exercise and looking and seeing the seer behind, said, what if I'm missing the essential part? What if I really am broken through and through? Anybody thought that? Because your story is unique. You have deepage. Some of us don't have the deepage. You have the deepage. You have serious problems. And she said, it's not possible. It's not possible. She said, look again. And then she told him the story of Nasruddin. You know the story of Nasruddin? He's the Sufi uh, clown and trickster. Nasruddin is, for years and years and years, Nasruddin is smuggling. And he goes across a border crossing from, from, from Turkey to uh, probably Iraq. And he's going across the border every day. And he's pulling his donkey with him. And they know he's smuggling. And they can't figure out what he's smuggling. And they search the donkey every day and they search him every day and they can't figure it out. And years and years and years go by. And they still can't figure it out. And finally Nasruddin has retired to a beautiful mansion because he's made so much money smuggling. And one of the guards that he had passed every day on his journey of smuggling said to him what the heck can you tell me now what were you smuggling we can't figure it out he says well, I was smuggling donkeys <laughs> it's hidden in plain sight what we're looking for is hidden in plain sight we are equipped we have everything we need right here we have brilliant minds that can choose we have sense of humor, we have compassion, we have love. It's like Greg Mortensen, when I read that story, I thought, isn't it amazing? What's in it in us that just knows we want to help? Despite what they're telling us, that the world is coming to an end financially, what is it within us that just wants to help? And it is that divine connection. There is no private good. Dr. Ernest Holmes said, there's no private good. Your good is my good. There's no such thing as competition. You see somebody doing something great in life, celebrate it. Celebrate it. Because when we judge it, we cut ourselves off from it. And it's a vibration, and it's an energetic. It's a consciousness. Celebrate the good. Dr. Holmes said it. Take your good where you find it. Leave the rest behind. He never wasted any time. When he was done with something, he was done. He'd end it. Not in a bad way. He'd just love it away. Every day we're in touch with what it, what, that which is not broken. But we are so busy paying attention to the million details of day-to-day -day life that we miss it. And whether we name it or not, it's still there. Whether we pay attention to it or not, it doesn't go away. It's always there with us. But to slow down enough, just to slow down enough, to slow down enough and pay attention. Think about a time when you were transported beyond what you normally define as yourself. Could be when you gave birth to a child. In the middle of a rainforest. Maybe it happened when you were 20 years old and you were on drugs. 
Maybe it happened whenever you were in nature or when you're, for no good reason, you're suddenly happy. Anybody ever had spontaneous happiness? Brian, once? You did once? Good. But suddenly you caught a glimpse of beauty. And, and, and as if someone opened the cage door and let you out of the iron vice of your mind. And not one thing has changed from the moment before everything looks and feels and is completely different. It is the twinkling of an eye, as it says in Scripture. We are the prodigal sons and this brother. We're the father. And we can come home to the father anytime we choose. It's right here. It's right now. But it's, it, it takes a while to unravel that. And even to become aware of the stories we keep telling ourselves. So if we've gone crazy for a while, we've decided, I don't need this, any of this spiritual stuff. I used to try that. I'd come in and I'd get my life squared away. I'd be working with a practitioner. I knew this stuff worked. I knew this stuff worked when I was five years old. I knew that if I brought a great attitude to something, I usually had favorable results. And I knew that if I didn't care and I just threw my nothing into it, it requires spiritual coin. I got back what I put in. It's called cause and effect. There was no miracle. I kept waiting for the miracle to happen. And then I realized I had gifts and talents I had to develop and continue to develop. But that's how this life works. See, that movie, The Secret, I'm telling you, <sighs> drives me crazy. And that guy says, oh yeah, I just started imagining checks coming in the mail and checks came in the mail. Did you ever try that? <laughs> I haven't gotten a check yet. It requires spiritual coin. There has to be value given for value received. Consciousness prevails and we will receive into our lives that which is at the level of our subjective consciousness. Even if you watch lottery winners win the, the good fortune, there's chance, and they win the money and they don't have the consciousness to hold it. And so what happens in a year or two, they're broke. They've borrowed everybody money and given it all away. They can't hold it. There's, consciousness isn't there. I'll give you a great example of this. I'm, the, the fourplex across the parking lot on Monday, we should close on the purchase of that. But eight years ago when I came here, a little less than eight years ago, I came here and I went to Norm McLeod and I went down to the bank to see if we could get a better interest rate. We had a pretty nice-sized mortgage at the time. And I walked in there to RBC with Norm and I said, hey, we're here, you know, and I'm you know, just all enthusiastic. And I said, we'd like to know if we get a better interest rate on our mortgage. And they said, well, number one, you don't have a mortgage here. I said, really? No, we have, you have a demand note. And if you guys don't start getting better on your payments, we're going to be demanding the note pretty soon. So I would suggest you go back and make sure you make payments regularly. So all of my optimism sort of evaporated. I thought, wow, okay, interesting. Because it was about 8, eight to 9% interest on our demand note. And so we, I came back and I thought, okay, let's just do what, what's before us. Let's be, good, let's be good stewards. But what we had to give birth to as well as the stewardship was the consciousness. And so this fourplex came available a couple months ago. And somebody said, we've got to go to the bank. And as soon as I said, bank, I tightened up. And, oh, I remember the bank. <laughs> oh, to that bank? We've got to go back to that bank? Okay, I'm going. So I had to right away do some prayer work. You know, that was eight years ago. And I had to surrender and not be attached. I said, you know, the highest and best is going to happen. And we're looking at our future. We're looking at possibilities. So what should we do? So Norman and I went down. And I went down with Terry Trisk as well. And I said, we'd like to buy this fourplex. We pretty much have paid off almost all of the nice-sized mortgage when I got here. And we went to the bank, and they looked at our financials, and they looked at what we're doing and what we've been doing. We never missed a payment. Every week, we'd pay on the mortgage. We had a weekly payment on our demand note. They said, you know what? We'll be happy to do this. We'll give you a really nice interest rate. 
you guys don't have to come up with any money. You've got enough equity in your facility and you've got a strong enough track record. We believe in you. But it was giving birth to the consciousness. It doesn't happen overnight. But it's making a commitment. And the commitment that we have as a, as a community is to be good stewards of what we have. But that's the way consciousness works. And so to be able to do that with the, the clarity, focus, ease, and grace that we talk about all the time, it took a bit of time to shift the consciousness. But we've done that collectively. We've done that. So the consciousness is there. But I can't tell you all the steps in between then and now that it took other than to be good stewards of the trust and the partnership that we have continued to nurture with that, that uh, financial institute. She says that eventually we get so tired of trying to fix ourselves that we stop. So if you've gotten to exhaustion with it, this is good. It's progress. We see that we're never going to be able to make ourselves good. We're never going to be able to accomplish ourselves into being someone else. And so we stop trying. And we see there's no goal, no end place, no test to take. No one is keeping score. No one is watching us and deciding whether we are worthy enough to ascend. As one of my teachers once said, you can't be stuck if you're not trying to get anywhere. So the only place to get is right here, right now. And it doesn't mean we don't have things to do, but we do it from that awareness, from that consciousness. So wherever you are in your life, you have a goal in life, it's about developing and establishing the consciousness and embodying it. And if your goal is to be financial free, there's nothing wrong with wanting financial freedom. The only reason that I believe we have financial freedom or we have finances in our life is to create greater freedom. What Elmas talked about, to f- fulfill and to have freedom. To be able to, like Greg Mortensen said, to walk in like this guy from Crocs and give $50,000 to build, to build schools so these, gr- these girls can be educated and help change that c- community and that environment. But that'll take 20 years. But it's not a quick fix. We're on this journey. We're on it together. I'll leave you with this. She said, I am certain of this at the end of this chapter. It's a wonderful book. If you're not in one of the book studies and you're thinking about doing it, it's a wonderful book. It doesn't just apply to food. She says, of this I am certain. Something happens every time I stop fighting with the way things are. Something happens to every one of my students when they stop running their familiar programs about fear and deficiency and emptiness. I don't know what to call this turn of events or the freshness that follows it, but I know what it feels like. It feels like relief. It feels like infinite goodness, like a distillation of every sweet fragrance, every heart-stopping beauty, every haunting melody you've ever heard. It feels like the essence of tenderness, compassion, joy, and peace, like love itself. This is what Jesus was talking about. This is what the Buddha was talking about. And of course, are we going to be the Buddha? Are we going to be the Christ consciousness? Maybe not. But we can embody these, these qualities where we are, and I believe it is possible for all of us. But I don't want, the reason I share that, I don't want you quitting on yourself just because you think, I can't get there. You can get there at your own level of consciousness. You can establish, you can shift and change it all right now. The facts are the facts, but facts always change. When you forget, <clears throat> which you always do, you suddenly understand that kindness to anyone I love this because we can do this this week. We can do this now. Kindness to anyone, to a plant, an animal, a stranger, a partner, brings you closer to this experience. Taking care of your body is taking care of this. That taking care of the earth is taking care of this, this divine essence. And that you turn away from anything or anyone that asks you to leave this 
because this is what you wanted. This is what you've longed for. This is what you've loved for eons. And you know without knowing how you know that every step you've ever taken, every person you've ever loved, every task you've ever accomplished has been this meeting. It is that meeting of the divine. And when we move out of the driven behavior and the fear and the anxiety, because that's what has to go to be in this as often as possible. When we move out of that, we live in the mystery because most of us don't know the, the language. Free-floating joy and bliss. We return to ourselves. So whether we're the one that thinks, if I play by all the rules, I'm going to be rewarded, or we're the brother that says, I'm going to go out and rip and run and do whatever I want to do, both need to return to the one, to the self, which is that divine Father, which is the one that always says, I love you. Where you been? I missed you. Love you. I'm so proud of you. Happy Father's Day. Mm-hmm. Namaste. Here she is.